This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg, reporting from Tallahassee, where the political establishment has been shaken to its core after Donald Trump and the First Lady contracted COVID-19. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back because we still have to make America great again. The president spent the weekend at Walter Reed Medical Center and hopes to return to the White House today. His inner circle has now been breached by the virus and a who's who of D.C. insiders are in quarantine. Many of the people who attended a Rose Garden ceremony nine days ago where Trump introduced his latest Supreme Court nominee have tested positive, and this may turn out to be what the problem is, a super spreader. It could also be a problem here in Florida, where the governor is counting on new Abbott rapid testing kits to screen visitors at nursing homes. Literally, is like a, a little little card you open, you stick in the swab, and it'll give you the result in 15 minutes. It's you know, almost like reading a pregnancy test almost. It's, it's that simple. Ron DeSantis hailed the rapid test as a game changer in the fight against COVID-19. But people who attended the Rose Garden ceremony were administered rapid tests, and that did not stop the virus. On today's Sunrise interview, we'll talk with our in-house pollster and political pundit, Steve Vancor, to get his take on how this will affect the presidential race. If it looks like he had been positive and still continued to shake hands with people, get up close to them, etc., that's a really, really bad thing, and he looks the fool. Schools are reopening today in Miami-Dade and Broward. They didn't want to do it this soon, but the governor and the education commissioner were threatening to mess with their money if they didn't. Regardless of the outbreak, the evidence is clear. Uh, the schools aren't a vector for spread. The kids are less likely to have, to get, they're less likely to get infected, less likely to have severe disease, and they're less likely to spread it. We'll also check out your calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who requested a mail-in ballot for his wife, who's been dead for two years. You'll also hear Sheriff Grady Judd talk about a man who tried to jack four cars and failed in spectacular fashion. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, October 5th. It's the International Day of the Teacher. It's also the day in 1969 that a sketch comedy show called Monty Python's Flying Circus made its debut on the BBC. It was, as they said at the time, something completely different. And suddenly, Trump supporters are wearing face masks. All it took was a presidential case of COVID-19. Donald Trump was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center Friday. He dropped a video on his Twitter feed Saturday to try to reassure the country that all is well. I came here, wasn't feeling so well. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back because we still have to make America great again. We've done an awfully good job of that, but we still have steps to go and we have to finish that job. And I'll be back, I think I'll be back soon. And I look forward to finishing up the campaign the way it was started and the way we've been doing and the kind of numbers that we've been doing. We've been so proud of it. But this was something that happened and it's happened to millions of people all over the world and I'm fighting for them, not just in the US, I'm fighting for them all over the world. We're going to beat this coronavirus or whatever you want to call it, and we're going to beat it soundly. So now we know what it takes to get the president to take the pandemic seriously. It wasn't the 209,000 Americans who've been killed by COVID. It was the one person in the Oval Office who was infected. So many things have happened. If you look at the therapeutics, which I'm taking right now, some of them, and others are coming out soon that are looking like uh, frankly, they're miracles, if you want to know the truth. They're miracles. People criticize me when I say that. But we have things happening that look like they're miracles coming down from God. So I just want to tell you that I'm starting to feel good. 
you don't know over the next period of a few days. I guess that's the real test. So we'll be seeing what happens over those next next couple of days. I just want to be so thankful for all of the support I've seen, whether it's on television or reading about it. Uh, I most of all appreciate what's been said by the American people, by almost a bipartisan consensus of American people. It's a beautiful thing to see, and I very much appreciate it, and I won't forget it. I promise you that. I also want to thank the leaders of the world for uh, their condolences and their they know what we're going through. They know what, as your leader, what I have to go through. But I had no choice because I just didn't want to stay in the White House. I was given that alternative. Stay in the White House, lock yourself in, don't ever leave, don't even go to the Oval Office. Just stay upstairs and enjoy it. Don't see people, don't talk to people, and just be done with it. And I can't do that. I had to be out front and this is America. This is the United States. This is the greatest country in the world. This is the most powerful country in the world. I can't be locked up in a room upstairs and totally safe and uh, just say, hey, whatever happens, happens. I can't do that. We have to confront problems. As a leader, you have to confront problems. There's never been a great leader that would have done that. So that's where it is. Of course, it wasn't just the president. Several members of his inner circle have been infected, including three top aides and the first lady. I'm doing well. Our first lady is doing very well. Melania asked me to say something as to the respect that she has for our country, the love that she has for our country. And uh, we're both doing well. Melania is uh, really handling it very nicely. As you've probably read, she's slightly younger than me, just a little tiny bit. And uh, therefore, just we know the disease, we know the situation with age versus uh, younger people. And uh, Melania is handling it statistically like it's supposed to be handled. And uh, that makes me very happy and it makes the country very happy. But I'm also doing well and I think we're going to have a very good result. Again, over the next few days, we're going to probably know for sure so I just want to thank everybody out there, everybody all over the world, specifically the United States. The outpouring of love has been incredible. I will never forget. The White House released a couple of photos of Trump supposedly working at the hospital over the weekend, but one of the papers he was signing was completely blank. And even though he had a complete wardrobe change, the photos were taken just 10 minutes apart. Is it any wonder that hashtag staged was trending on Twitter? COVID has also sidelined three Republican senators, Trump's campaign manager, the chair of the Republican National Committee, and the president of Notre Dame. Almost all of them were at that White House Rose Garden ceremony when the president introduced his new Supreme Court nominee. Everyone who attended that meeting was screened for the virus with the new Abbott Rapid Test that gives you an answer in about 15 minutes. Everyone passed and they were told they could remove their masks. Too bad they did. If you look at the pictures of the event, masks were the exception, not the rule. The failure of the rapid test to prevent this infection at the White House has grave ramifications here in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis has been touting them as a way to safely reopen nursing homes to visitation. Last week, before the president was diagnosed, DeSantis held two different events where he promoted the rapid testing kits that were coming to Florida. Literally, it's like a, a little, little card you open, you stick in the swab, and it'll give you the result in 15 minutes. It's you know, almost like reading a pregnancy test almost. It's, it's that simple. And so we believe that uh, that'll be some, that'll be a great tool to help protect our, our population that's especially vulnerable to this, the senior population. 
uh, as well as helping be a tool to uh, keep kids in school. I mean, if somebody is sick, you take them out, you do a quick test. Uh, and if they're not, not COVID, then you don't have to disrupt uh, any more of the class. So I think it's really, really important. We're also looking at what this would mean for uh, things like the cruise industry, because the CDC has been, um, you know, resistant to letting them sail again. Uh, well, if you have a situation where these tests are, uh, can be administered right on site, you don't need a lab, you don't need anything, it's just the result comes you have an opportunity uh, to really get that industry back going, and that's an important industry uh, for the state of Florida. The Division of Emergency Management had been planning to send out the first shipments of those rapid test kits today. No word from the governor if those plans have been altered, and he has yet to issue a public statement on the president's infection. The last we heard from Ron DeSantis was on Friday. His claim then was that closing schools back in the spring was a mistake. He also claims people who oppose the reopening of public schools during the pandemic are the modern equivalent of flat earthers. Maybe that's why he was so insistent on getting schools reopened in Dade and Broward counties, the last counties to allow kids back in the classroom. If you listen closely, you'll actually hear the governor backhanding the parents who still won't send their kids back because they don't think it's safe. Miami-Dade, they're going to be back with in-person K-12 through instruction. Regardless of the outbreak, the evidence is clear. Uh, the schools aren't a vector for spread. The kids are less likely to have, to get, they're less likely to get infected, less likely to have severe disease, and they're less likely to spread it. So there's no place in the world that has been able to show schools being a driver of outbreaks like you would definitely be able to do for flu. Uh, and so we were doing it and you know, people were hooting and hollering. But we said at the end of the day, every parent in Florida should have the right to get in-person instruction. If you want to remain on this distance learning, that's fine. Uh, we're not going to begrudge that. Uh, there's not really an evidence basis for it, but, but that's fine if you want to do it. Uh, but we need to do it. And so... With Miami-Dade coming on, Broward is going to have to follow suit. And so if Broward also does on Monday, um, that will mean of the 10 largest school districts in the country in terms of student enrollment, um, five of the 10 uh, will be open for in-person instruction. Five of the 10 will be closed. The five of the 10 biggest school districts that are open for in-person instruction are all in the state of Florida. The other five are in other states. And so you have places like New York City that has no COVID um, closed. You have places like Nevada, Las Vegas closed. Chicago, very little COVID. Their outbreak was in March and April closed. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's obviously it's the right policy. Uh, it's evidence-based. And even with schools being open now for almost two months in some parts of Florida, uh, even the media is not able to find examples of this leading to big outbreaks. The governor still refuses to make masks mandatory, and he sided with the deniers by issuing an executive order that says local governments that do require them cannot enforce the regulation. But students, teachers, staff, and anyone who walks into the school offices in Broward or Dade will still be required to wear a face or mask covering to help protect others, whether they have symptoms or not. The virus is still killing Floridians, and there are thousands of new cases every day. But the governor tries to avoid that inconvenient truth by comparing today's stats to what was happening at the peak of the pandemic in July. We have had a lot of declines in COVID over the last two months. You know, right now, we're, it, it doesn't go away, um, but basically it's operating below an epidemic threshold in Florida and throughout the Sun Belt. We'll see what happens going forward. I mean, I don't think people thought that there was going to be this seasonal uh, upsurge and throughout the South. I think people thought that uh, the virus would probably come back in the fall. Uh, we were ready, and I think most of the southern states were ready 
but I don't know in terms of how the seasonal impact will be. It may be more pronounced in the Northeast than it is down here in Florida. So we'll see. But we have we have so many more resources now, uh, so much infrastructure that we'll be able to do um, uh, do what we need to do. 639 additional fatalities and 16,000 new cases of COVID-19 were reported by the state health department over the past week. Florida has now recorded more than 716,000 infections. We're third in the nation behind California and Texas. Next up on the Sunrise Interview, we continue the COVID conversation with our resident pollster and pundit, Steve Vancor. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Predict It is like the stock market for all things politics. Instead of trading stock in companies, you're investing money into your opinions on everything from election results to how many times President Trump will tweet this week. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Our podcast listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Try it today. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is pollster, political advisor, and campaign aficionado Steve Vancor. He's a regular here on the podcast, our go-to guy as we figure out what happens next in the topsy-turvy world of Florida politics. So what happens to the presidential campaign now that Donald Trump has come down with COVID? Take it away, Steve. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first things first, uh, I think we should wish the president and the first lady speedy recovery. Uh, they are you, you may not like them politically, but they still are, are. He is still our president of the United States. She's still the, the first lady. And, you know, pragmatically, since this is a political talk show, uh, pragmatically, the Democrats should want Donald Trump to get well uh, quickly, even if they want him to kind of languish and have a lot of uh, resentment towards him. Because if he ends up getting very sick, that does call the election uh, into question. If, let's say, the Democrats sweep the Republicans will have a great platform to say, hey, uh, that wasn't fair. You don't get a uh, you don't get a mandate and all those kind of things. So I think for every good reason, we want him to get well uh, just because he is a fellow human being. And so is his wife. Uh, so let me you would ask me specifically, what impact does this have? Do I believe on the election? Of course, we know it is very dangerous to predict anything when it comes to Donald Trump and elections. So here we go, right? <laughs> Boy, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, Steve. <laughs> Never predict when Donald Trump is around, and yet we keep doing it. I think this hurts him for four specific reasons, Rick. Uh, you know, I've done and been an intimate part of over 400 elections. I have to say this. When the candidate, him or herself, is at a commission, even if they're down to 60, 70, 80 percent of, of, of full cells, it hurts the campaign, the energy, the direction always comes directly from, from the leader. And in this case, with four weeks remaining, having Trump out of commission, forgetting all the politics of it, it, it genuinely will hurt. It'll hurt fundraising, it'll hurt strategy, it'll hurt approval uh, of a variety of things. So it's going to hurt for that reason. Secondly, I think it hurts because for those voters, that rare unicorn voter who was still undecided and was thinking about COVID, whether the president was right or wrong, and Trump looks the fool. We're now seeing that he was in meetings where we know he was positive and he was shaking people's hands. He was getting close to them. He was violating common sense rules, especially for those who um, were testing positive. We're getting mixed signals from the White House. We're getting mixed signals from his doctor, from his chief of staff, how long he had tested positive, et cetera. But if it looks like he had been positive and still continued 
to shake hands with people, get up close to them, et cetera. That's a really, really bad thing, and he looks the fool. But, you know, there's two other points, I think, that really do help the Biden campaign. And the first of which is Trump had hoped to convey that Biden was weak, he was old, he was frail. You heard the lead up to the debate about he's taking steroids, that's the only way he can keep up with me. He chose to personally and, and to bully the guy to show who was the stronger alpha male. Well, if you got the sniffles and a cough and you're bedridden, that takes away a key fundamental message of, of the Trump campaign. And last, Rick, you've heard me talk about the attention span of the American electorate. You know, uh, six months ago, this was going to be, or five months ago, it was going to be the COVID election. Then it became the Black Lives Matter election. They were like, oh, it's going to be a referendum on how he deals with COVID. That went away. Black Lives Matter displaced that. We had the whole debate about defund, not defund. What does Black Lives Matter mean, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's like, that's going to be the message of the campaign. Then the passage of uh, the passing of RBG, now it's going to be a referendum. And I thought that was going to help the president uh, get reelected because if it was a referendum, not on COVID, not on violence in the streets, but instead on the Supreme Court, that dance has been danced once before and the Democrats lost. And in this case, uh, the RBG is suddenly no longer an issue. We're back on COVID. And for the next two to three weeks, we're going to remain on COVID and this conversation about how sick is the president? Was he sick? What did he know? Who did he, you know, who know it, et cetera. So I think for framing purposes, as people are casting their ballots and they are all across America, I mean, the ballots are coming back at record speed. We are now on a winning frame for the Democrats and already the overnight polling is starting to show that. Wow. So is there a way to turn this around? Can, can the Trump people all start suddenly wearing masks and try to win an empathy vote? Or is, I guess I'm trying to figure out if their path has been just about cut off. I, I, I don't see how, but I wouldn't rule something out. I don't know that Donald Trump is capable of sustaining an empathy vote when his whole purpose and his whole thing was, we're strong, we're great, we're going to make America great. Now it's got to be hey, I was wrong, hey, everybody wear a mask, when you had his base running around telling people that masks were junk science, that COVID wasn't even real, it's the Wuhan flu, it's not that dangerous. You don't go to the hospital, especially when you have a medical facility at the White House, a not insignificant medical facility at the White House, by the way. You've got that at the White House, and now you're at a major military hospital uh, I, I don't know how they turn this around. I don't know how he gets the sympathy vote. There's a lot of people pretty angry because everybody at this point, Rick, knows somebody who has gotten very ill from it, if not somebody who has died from it. Our guest today on the Sunrise Interview has been Steve Vancour, a regular here on the podcast. Your calendar of events? Well, for starters, today is the deadline to register to vote in the elections. Mail-in voting is already underway. The State Electrolysis Council meets in conference call at 8.30. The Florida Chamber of Commerce holds an online event at 2 to attack a proposed constitutional amendment that increases the state's minimum wage by $1 an hour every year until it reaches 15 bucks an hour by 2026. At 6 p.m., the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission continues a series of online workshops about rules regarding the importation, breeding, and possession of invasive reptiles. And Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and his wife Jill are scheduled to campaign in South Florida. The Democratic candidate will also appear in a town hall event hosted by NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt at 8 in Miami. A Florida man is arrested after admitting he requested a mail-in ballot for his wife, who died two years ago. The elections office in Manatee County received two requests from a husband and wife at the same address, and the signatures did not match. 
So they checked with the sheriff's office and discovered the woman had died in 2018. 62-year-old Larry Wiggins admitted mailing in his deceased wife's ballot request, telling detectives he was testing the system to see if it worked. It did. Wiggins is charged with requesting a vote by mail ballot on behalf of another elector. That's a third-degree felony. Could mean up to five years in state prison. Finally today, a Florida man is busted in Polk County after trying to carjack four different drivers. Sheriff Grady Judd says 32-year-old Christopher Hendricks was fleeing a hit-and-run on Interstate 4 and ran to a gas station to try to find another vehicle. She was in the process of gassing her vehicle when he tried to get in, so she appropriately took the gas nozzle and sprayed him with gasoline. Well, he ran immediately to a burgundy-colored van that was there, the owner was not in the van, but he was up at the store. So the man who has a concealed weapons permit promptly pulled out his firearm and extracted Christopher from his vehicle at gunpoint. So what does he do? He starts and he runs down the side of the embankment and he jumps onto the westbound traffic of the interstate. Well, there's a fellow driving a box truck. So he slams on brakes. He is rewarded with his efforts by being rear-ended by a semi. So now we have another crash. Is Christopher deterred? No, he's not deterred. So he goes to the fourth vehicle. That victim grabbed his keys out of his vehicle and he ran. We arrive in force and we put Christopher Hendricks in handcuffs in the back of our car. He kicks the back windows out of the patrol car in an effort to escape. Not only was he going to escape, he was going to steal our handcuffs too. We didn't appreciate that very much. Hendricks is charged with carjacking, grand theft auto, occupied burglary, felony criminal mischief, and escape. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.